Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you, Nigel, very much indeed. Thank you for the warm welcome back to Hill Street. It's lovely to be here again. Uh, I think it's just about a year or so ago when I was here and uh, took you up the Mekong River in a little bullet of a boat and uh, showed you what it was like to uh, begin to carry some Bibles into the church there in Southeast Asia. And uh, this evening, I want to take you on another a journey and tell you a little bit more uh, about the great need that there is in the continent of Asia. Uh, I, for the last uh, 16 years, have been working full-time with AsiaLink. Before that, I was a minister in a couple of churches. For the last 16 years, working with AsiaLink, which hopefully you can see on the screen. Now, the motto of our mission is there, just under the title, for the unreached people of Asia. And that's very important to us. That's our goal. That's at the heart of everything we do. We're trying not to work where there's lots of Presbyterians, lots of Baptists, lots of Bibles, lots of evangelists. I think maybe the last time I was here, I said we wouldn't be caught dead in places like that. We want to take the gospel to where there are no churches, no Bibles, no evangelists, no children's workers, to those that are untouched, unreached, whole cultures, whole language groups, whole provinces across in Asia, of which there are many. And uh, in our world, there are seven billion people. And of the seven billion people, three billion of them are unreached. That's not three billion who are lost. There are many, many more than that that are lost, but three billion people who are in double trouble. They are not just lost. They're not just on a road to a lost eternity. They are lost with no one to explain to them how they can get onto the right path, how they can be found. They're in double trouble. Three billion people in our world who don't know what the gospel is and don't know what salvation is all about. And of the three billion people in our world that are unreached, three quarters of them live in Asia. Three quarters of all the world's unreached live in this continent of Asia. And we work from Iran and Iraq over in the west, right through to North Korea in the east, from outer Mongolia in the north, right through to the Maldives Islands in the south. And I would love this evening to be able to tell you about more of those places. I would love to tell you where I was just a couple of weeks ago, on the Maldives Islands, this little group of islands dropped into the middle of Indian, the Indian Ocean. It uh, might be the kind of place you might say initially, it's well for some, it's a nice wee job, Gordon, to visit the Maldives. 99. 9% Islamic. It's the only country that I know of in the world where there is no church, no church gathered group of Moldavian people that live in those islands. I would love to tell you something of what God is doing in the Maldive Islands. But this evening, I want to take you to higher ground uh, from the low ground of the Maldives right on sea level. I want to take you high up into the Himalayas this evening and share with you something of the challenge of another part of the world. And um, Before we do that, I don't know if you have your Bible. If you have, I just want to read two verses from Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And while you're looking these couple of verses out, I want you to think, where in the world can happiness be found? Where can happiness be found? And uh, I am convinced that I don't need to tell the church here and Hill Street, where happiness can be found. But we're going to read Psalm 32, just the first couple of verses, because we're talking this evening about happiness and where it can be located. 
And this is what we read, a Psalm of David. Blessed or truly deeply happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed or truly deeply happy is the man or the woman whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. I don't need to tell you in this church this evening where happiness can be found. Real happiness that will last in this life to the very end of this life and will take you to a place of eternal happiness is found when we have our sins forgiven and find the remedy for that sin and God's only remedy, His only Son, the Lord Jesus. And when we embrace Him, when we grab hold of Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and our whole trust for life and for eternity is placed in Him and in Him alone, we're sure that we will have found a happiness that will last forever. Blessed is the man or the woman whose sins are forgiven. That's where happiness is found. But I don't need to also remind you that there are people in our world this evening who are looking for happiness elsewhere. They're searching for something that will make them happy. They're trying all kinds of things, all kinds of religions, all kinds of thrills in order to find this elusive quality of happiness, and they've missed where it is. Now, there is a place in America that is the happiest place in the world. It's in Texas, in the United States of America, and it's a little town called Happy Town. There are 962 people that live in Happy Town in America. It's called Happy Town because years ago, the cowboys were driving cattle across the Texan plain, and they were looking for water. Their cattle were thirsty, and they searched and hunted, and eventually found a little water spring, and they drew water out of the ground, and it quenched the thirst of their cattle. It made their cattle happy, and so they named the wee place Happy Town, or Drew Happy, as it was initially called. 962 people now live in Drew Happy, or Happy Town, and they are the happiest people in the world. Of course, utter nonsense. They're as miserable as the rest of the Americans in the world. <laughs> they just happen to live in a place called Happy Town. Happy Town doesn't boast that it'll make you happy. It doesn't claim that it'll make you happy if you live there. It's just a name. But there is a place in our world that makes that boast. That says, if you can live here in our part of the world, and you can live our way, you'll find the source of real happiness. So this evening... Fasten your seatbelts. Come with me across the world to the happiest country in the world. And that country is the country of Bhutan. Now, I'm going to stick my neck out this evening and say that this might be the first time that some of you have ever been on a trip to Bhutan. Some of you have heard missionary reports for 40 or 50 years 60 or 70 years. Now, look, I don't want to look at anybody in particular, 
but maybe this might be your first trip, your first visit to the kingdom of Bhutan. So the first thing that we need to do is work out where in the world is it? So here's a map of the Himalayas. The Himalayas stretch from just about here right across to Bhutan. This whole area right in here, this is this is the Himalayas. And right up in the Himalayas, you have Nepal, which everybody could probably pick out fairly easily. And there, just beside it, here is this little kingdom, this little place called Bhutan. It's a beautiful part of the world. It's up in the highest mountains in the world. It has great mountains, deep valleys, fast-flowing rivers, an ancient culture going back hundreds of years. This is one of the richest, one of the most beautiful, one of the most stunning places that you could ever visit. But few people ever get there. Bhutan, this I suppose is a typical scene from Bhutan. Trees, rivers, and valleys. Bhutan has built into its constitution that at least 60% of the country has to be covered in trees. It's actually over 70%. I think Ireland is about 9%. So you can imagine this is a place covered in trees. And in those trees, there are insects, butterflies, spiders, monkeys, snow leopards, tigers that you won't find anywhere else in the world. If happiness was in the beauty of a place or in the environment or in the animal life and the insect life of a place, Bhutan would have it all. It is a stunning beautiful, amazing, fantastic part of the world to visit. Now, if Bhutan isn't very well known to you, then I'm going to imagine that maybe the capital city of Bhutan might not roll off the tongue very easily, because the capital city of Bhutan is called Timpu. And this is Timpu. It's located in one of the very few flat pieces of ground. Almost all of Bhutan is mountainous. But in one or two little spots, there are settlements, and this is the main one. This is the Timpu Valley. And down below, you can see the city of Timpu, one of the strangest little capital cities that I've ever been to. Let me tell you a few quirky little things about Bhutan and Timpu. The first thing is this. Nobody in Bhutan or in Timpu will be dressed like you or me. That's not unusual, they're Asian. But let me go a bit further. No one in Bhutan or Timpu will be dressed even Asian. They dress like nobody else in the world, uniquely and distinctly Bhutanese. The men wear a thing like this. It's just like a big long dressing gown. And the women wear a short jacket and a long striped skirt called a kiri. The men's is like a big dressing gown and it's called a go. And everyone in Bhutan has to wear this national costume. If you don't, and you step out of your house and decide you're going to wear your Levi jeans and your baggy t-shirt, the police will probably stop you and fine you. And if you continue to do it, they'll put you in prison. The reason for that is that they want the Bhutanese culture to remain Bhutanese. They want Bhutanese men to dress like Bhutanese men, not like Westerners, not like Americans. They want to hold on to their culture. Now, you've probably never seen a go 
uh, that the men are wearing. I don't know whether you've ever called at Nigel's door on a Monday morning about half past 10 and caught him in his dressing gown. Have you? Have any of you ever caught Nigel in his dressing gown? Well, you're about to catch him in his dressing gown tonight. Nigel, we'll get you to come up and uh, we'll show them. This, this, is what, this is what a go looks like. Is this extra large? It's okay, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. <laughs> right. If you just hold that there, right? Just put your hand there. Do you think I'm a church of Ireland? <laughs> no. <laughs> right, tie that. Just tie that. Now, you know, you know the little expression, there are no, there are no, there are no pockets in a shroud. There are also no pockets in a go. So here we are. Here's Nigel, and he's here. You can see he's got no pockets. Where's he going to put his wallet? Where's he going to put his mobile phone? All those kind of things. Well, this is what this little bit here for. That's where it is. And if you look at the man in the picture, look, you see he's got a book or something stuffed inside. So this is the pocket. And this is what the men in Bhutan will be wearing, minus the trousers, because they will only be wearing little long socks up to the knees. But we don't really want to see Nigel's knees, do we? No. <laughs> So that's okay, Nigel, thank you. You can take that off. Thank you very much. That's a go. That's the first thing. Nobody in Bhutan, nobody in Bintempo will be dressed like you and I. They want to keep the Bhutanese culture. They want to keep Bhutan the way Bhutan has always been. Here's the second quirky, unusual thing about Bhutan. Nobody will be smoking cigarettes. Nobody is allowed to smoke cigarettes in Bhutan. I've, I've been all over Asia, and I have never been in a town, a village, or a city, never mind a country, where people aren't having a wee puff of a cigarette. But in Bhutan, nobody is allowed to smoke cigarettes. Cigarettes are banned. If you're caught bringing cigarettes into the country, look, three to five years, you can be put into prison. Or if you're caught having a little cigarette somewhere, look, you can be fined a significant amount of money for smoking cigarettes. Let me give you a little clue. The government in Bhutan believes that cigarettes damage people's health. So they banned them. Nobody's standing outside the Royal Hospital in Bhutan having a wee puff. Cigarettes are banned. Now maybe you're starting to think, hey, this, this just might be an interesting place. Maybe this is a place of happiness. Maybe you're a non-smoker. Maybe, maybe you don't like the, sm the smell of cigarette smoke. And maybe you might think this might just be the kind of place. Well, let me burst your bubble for a wee minute. Because if people can't smoke, they'll probably find something else to do instead of it. And that's what they do in Bhutan. They're not allowed to smoke. And instead, they chew a nut called the doma nut. And this is it. This is the nut inside the shell. This is it opened up. You can see, look, see the little white and red colored nut inside. The local people take that white and red colored nut. They'll either do it themselves or they'll get a man like this to do it. He's painting lime over the outside of the nut and he puts it inside a special leaf and he'll sell it to you or you can make it yourselves. And then you put that leaf, that lime, that nut into your mouth and you chew it. And as you chew it, the mixture of the saliva and the chewing action and the lime and the leaf and the nut cause a chemical reaction inside your brain. And it makes the people of Bhutan happy. <laughs> happy. It's a drug, a highly addictive drug. 
and it makes the people of Bhutan happy and everybody is chewing the nut. The wee boys heading off to school on a Monday morning will have their lunchbox and their school bag and in their pocket a wee, a wee packet of dough nuts. Your taxi driver driving your car on the mountain roads with 5,000 feet dropped down below you and not a crash barrier on the side of the road and you look at him and he's just popped a second dough nut in his mouth and he's chewing it as he's driving along the road. This is a happy nut that the Bhutanese people are, are taking. And uh, there are a couple of problems with it. Number one, it's a highly addictive drug. You have to take more to get the same effect. Drugs are bad for you. That's the first thing. Secondly, it is the number one cause for mouth cancer among Bhutanese people, and they do not know it. And thirdly, as they chew this nut, it gives off this horrible red dye. This red dye stains their teeth and stains and rots their gums and makes their teeth fall out. And I don't know if you can see it very well, but look at this wee man here. I don't know if you fancy giving him a wee kiss. Not the one behind, the one on the front. And look, he's hardly a tooth in his head. He's been chewing the dominant for way too long. No cigarettes in Bhutan, but the dominant features strongly. Thirdly, the third quirky thing about Bhutan is this. This is the national football stadium of Bhutan. Now, ladies, just bear with me, please, one minute. Don't drift off when I talk about football. This is a wee bit quirky. This is the national football stadium. This is where Bhutan, the national team, play their home games. This is Windsor Park in the Himalayas. Okay? Now, FIFA, the world governing body of football, ranks all the countries in the world according to how good they are at football. Brazil, Germany, Belgium, Argentina, they're all at the top, number one, all the way down. We're in the 20s or the 30s. And then it goes all the way down to the 209th football team in the world. The worst football team in the world is Bhutan. They're rubbish at football. Terrible. In fact, up until quite recently, they had never won a World Cup qualifying game. Lost every one. Until a little while ago, Bhutan hit the headlines. They played a home game at this stadium against Sri Lanka in a World Cup qualifier. Never won a game before in the World Cup. Lost every one. And this little man here, number 16, Jimmy Doji, scored a goal for Bhutan and they beat Sri Lanka 1-0. It made the people of Bhutan happy. <laughs> They're rubbish at football. They jumped 36 places in the FIFA world rankings. Is it any wonder FIFA's corrupt? But they jumped all those places because of one goal. They're rubbish at football, but they are world-class at archery. That's their sport. That's the one that they're most interested in. Archery is their, their, their sport. And you'll see these archery competitions that are taking place all throughout the country. They're shooting arrows. You can hardly see it right up the far end, about 150 meters up the far end at a target the size of my head. I can't even see the target, never mind hit it, but they are among the best in the world at archery. Bhutan, Tempe, quirky, unusual, strange little country. 
up in the Himalayas. Now, this is the king of Bhutan. Actually, it's the former king. And he's a very popular man. And a number of years ago, he began to shape and change his country. And he began to talk about making his country the happiest country in the world. He and his son talk about this gross national happiness, which is just wanting to make the vast majority of the people in Bhutan happy. This is what he said a number of years ago. Gross national happiness is more important than gross domestic product. Think about that for a wee minute. Gross national happiness. The happiness of my people is more important than finances, quantitative easing, budgetary methods. I want my people to be happy. That's what he said a number of years ago. And it's not just what he says. That's what he aims and longs and desires for his country to be, guided by happiness. Let me give you one example. Bhutan's great commodity, I've already mentioned it, hinted at it, is trees. They have trees, and, and there are lots of people who would love those trees. The Chinese would love to get their wee hands on those trees in Bhutan. And they're itching to get in, to get the trees. And they're pleading with them. And the king of Bhutan could bring in a big Chinese logging company. And they could start to chop down the trees, and they would make the king happy. They would make him rich. They would provide taxes and jobs that would improve the roads and the hospitals and the health and the education service. But the king will not let the Chinese get their hands on the trees. He will not chop down the trees. Why? Because inside those trees are insects. And they produce CO2 and all kinds of stuff that are way beyond me. And lions and, not lions, tigers and snow leopards roam around there. And the environment is more important than the money in his pocket. And that makes this man and this country a revolutionary. When he is saying happiness is more important than money. Can you think of any other country in the world that would be saying that? Sure, every decision that could ever be made, it seems, is based on finances and money and whether we can afford it. Here's a man, a leader, saying happiness is more important than money. And that's why people will say to you that this is the happiest place in the world. Now, of course, you don't just have to come and live in Bhutan in order to find this happiness because the king and all of its government are Buddhists. And they will say, if you want to be truly, deeply happy, if you want to find this elusive quality of happiness, you need not just to live in Bhutan, but you live in Bhutan and follow the Bhutanese way. You follow the Buddha. You spin prayer wheels. You devote your life to the path of the Buddha. You hang flags up with prayers in them that will flutter in the wind, that will earn you good karma. If you want to be really happy, truly, deeply happy, then you will be a Buddhist living in Bhutan. That's the secret to happiness. And if you travel to Bhutan, you'll find it's full of temples. It's like one giant Buddhist temple. Temples dot 
the countryside and the mountaintops and the sides of the roads. Tens of thousands of monks following the path of the Buddha and trying to find this elusive quality of, of happiness. Every single family in Bhutan is touched by Buddhism. It's in their very blood, in their very DNA. Buddhism and being Bhutanese are almost one. Almost every family in Bhutan will try and send at least one of their sons to be a Buddhist monk. I'm just going to repeat that again in case you missed it. Every single family, if they can, will try and send at least one of their sons to be a Buddhist monk. And when their son reaches the age of five, of five years of age, parents take their wee boy by the hand and tell him that he no longer will live in their home but he needs to go and live in a monastery. And they take him down to a monastery. Sometimes it's nearby them. Sometimes it's a family monastery. Hundreds of miles across the countryside. At five years of age, little boys are removed from their parents and put into monasteries like this all over Bhutan. Often these monasteries are above the clouds. They receive few visitors. Not many people are allowed to walk in they are cut off and isolated from the outside world. From five years of age, these wee boys will live in monasteries and will grow up there. These monasteries are run by old, senior, cruel, hard-hearted, often dictatorial monks. Monks that have been through the system themselves. And living in these monasteries is not an easy task. I'm not sure if you can see this photograph terribly well. This is the gate or the door of the temple. And outside it, you can see there's a long leather strap. And just beside it, there's a long wooden cane. And the wooden cane and the leather strap are not for decoration on the wall outside the temple or outside the, the monastery. They are there to thrash and beat little boys some as young as five years of age. Here are just two of them. The king of Bhutan looks at these two wee boys and the likes of them and says, here are the happiest wee creatures in all the world. They're living in Bhutan and they're devoting their life to following the Buddha. But these are not the happiest wee boys in the world. In fact, far from it. These wee boys could very well be the saddest little boys that you and I might ever, ever meet. They live in a monastery. Their day begins at five o'clock in the morning when they get up and make breakfast for the senior monks and bring it to their bedrooms. Then they sweep out the temples and clear out the flowers and the, and the melted candles and they light the clean candles and get them ready and prepared. Then they have their breakfast and head to school. They learn all kinds of subjects in school and after a little bite of lunch, they'll come into a room like this. Hundreds, thousands of wee boys in monasteries all over Bhutan will come into rooms like this and you can see they'll scatter around the room 
and sitting in front of them is the only possession that many of them will own, a long wooden box, just like this, this shape, this size. Inside the wooden box, there are papers, pages, Buddhist scriptures, Buddhist songs, Buddhist teaching, Buddhist mantras are all inside the wee box. And for two hours every day, those wee boys find a corner of the room and monasteries all over Bhutan, and they're given as part of their daily task a portion of Buddhist teaching that they have to memorize. They have to take it from the page in the box and store it up in their wee heads. And when we walk into the room, that's what they're doing. About 70 or 80 of them scattered all around the room. Big senior monk's up at the far end. He's reading the newspaper. The wee boys are frantically rocking back and forward. Some of them desperately tired. They're falling asleep as they rock back and forward. Because after two hours, the books are closed. The boxes are stopped. And the wee boys are brought up to the front, in front of the senior monk. The stage, we're kicked out of the room. We're not allowed in. We stand out in the hall and never forget it. As long as I live, I'll never forget it. One by one, the wee boys come to the front of the room and they memorize, they recite their two hours, what they've supposed to be learning. And any of them that stutter, any of them that haven't learned it, any of them that fell asleep, the big senior monk grabs them by the scruff of the neck and holds them down onto the ground and pulls their little robe off their back and takes his leather strap off him. And as hard as a grown man can beat those wee boys, he thrashes them and he beats them to instill into them the importance of following the Buddha and Buddha's teaching. And here's one of them. He's 10 years of age. He's in a monastery above the clouds in Bhutan. Very few people will ever see him. He's five years into his lifetime sentence. These wee boys will live here from the age of five until the day they die. This is their home. This is their life. This is their school. This is their salvation, they believe. From five years of age until the day they die, they'll live in this monastery. And they are the saddest little creatures in all the world because most of these wee boys will never once sit in a Sunday school. They'll never see a Bible. They'll never meet a Christian. They'll never go to a church. They'll live and die and go to a lost eternity, having never once heard about the Lord Jesus. But it's not just the young. This is the grand central shrine right at the very center of Bhutan. And if you go there on any day of the week, you'll find Bhutanese people flocking to it in the hundreds. They flock to this shrine and they walk around it clockwise, flicking beads through their fingers, chanting little mantras. Every time they walk around it, they flick a bead through their finger. Every time they chant the mantra, they flick a bead through their finger. And they're counting the number of revolutions that they make, the number of times that they can chant, because they believe that every time they... Uh, they do something good like that. They walk around the shrine. They're earning good merit, good karma, good works that they hope at the end of their life will outweigh their bad works. We met this little man standing at the side and he had walked around the shrine 80,000 times. He's incredibly proud of himself. 80,000 times he'd walked around the shrine. And I wish with all my heart that I could take you and set you where I'm sitting here taking this video 
and let you see these people lost and blinded and dark and filled with fear. Walking around, then there are those who can't walk, they're too old, and their families will plonk them down beside these giant prayer wheels and they'll just sit and spin them. Every time they spin them, they believe it's good works, good karma that hopefully will be added onto their life. Others will be sitting with Buddhist books and they'll be reading chapter after chapter, believing that every page they read is good works, good merit. They're trying to pile all these good works into their lives as they get towards the end of their life. I wish with all my heart that you could sit here and watch this little shrine and see the lostness of men and women. And the interesting thing for me about this particular shrine is that it's full of older people. It's full of older people gathering around the shrine or huddled together, some young people, but mainly old people. And if you look into the eyes of these older people, I don't think you find people that have found happiness following the Buddha their whole life. And it's still an elusive quality of happiness. They're still missing it. What I think you see in these Buddhist people gathered this shrine is not happiness, but fear and panic. They're coming towards the end of their life and they're thinking, have I done enough? Have I spun enough? Have I given enough? Have I followed enough? Have I walked around that shrine enough? Have I chanted enough? And that's all that man-made religion will do for people. As people get towards the end of their life like this, they will not find happiness. Instead, they'll be filled with fear and concern and maybe even terror. This is not the happiest place in the world. Happiness is not found in a location or in a man-made religion, but that's the boast that the king and the leaders of Bhutan will make. Now, if I was to stop there, that would be quite a night, wouldn't it? That would be the last night I would ever be back at Lurgan Presbyterian. You would all be going away thinking, that was another great depressing night with Gordon. Maybe at the end of the meeting, you'd all be hoping that out on the table there where my stand is, I would be giving out a donut for you all to cheer you all up after an evening like that. And all I want to say as I finish is this, that in the midst of all that darkness and all that gloom and all that unhappiness, God has his people. In the midst of all that, all that you've seen, all that terrible depression of Buddhism, God has his people. And I want to introduce them to you just for a couple of minutes, just as we finish. This is the pastor and his wife of a little church that we've been working with and supporting now for many years. We weren't able to meet him during the day because he would get into all kinds of trouble. This is not an easy place to be a Christian. But I want you to come with me. We, we meet him in the middle of, of, of the evening when it's dark and he's along the side of a road and we meet him along the side of the road and he takes us down the hill and across a river and up a bank and into the back of a wee house, and in the back of a house, under the floorboards of the house, are gathered 
and a wee room, a tiny wee room, about 50 people who have found what real happiness is all about. Not in a, not in a religion, not, not, not in a place, but found what Psalm 32 talks to us about. Their sins are forgiven. I want you to come with me and meet them. Life isn't easy. This lady here is called Angel. Her husband is a Buddhist, and she's a Christian. And when he hears that she's heading to church for a Wednesday evening meeting, he gets angry on many occasions and takes his fist. The pastor tells us he punches Angel in the pit of the stomach. It's not easy to be a Christian. These people are not naturally happy. Many of them can't buy bread. The wee pastor can't buy bread in the local town because the monks have threatened the shopkeepers not to serve him. This is not an easy place to be a Christian, but I want you to come with me. Down the river, up the bank, into the back of this wee house and come under the floorboards and meet a group of people who have found what real happiness is all about. You'll not understand all that they're singing and saying. Some of them speak English but one of the words that they're singing about you will understand. In fact, they can hardly sing it and say it without jumping up and down. And that word is Jesus. Jesus. That's their source. That's where happiness comes from. And so this little video will just introduce you to these people in the kingdom of Bhutan. I don't know if you know that song. Um... It's by a singer called Chris Rice. And the last little section of the, the song goes like this. And with your final heartbeat, we kiss this world goodbye. And we go in peace. And we land on glory's side. And we sing to Jesus. You know, you know what that is? You know what that little simple words put together? Do you know what that is? That's our Christian's hope. That's our hope. Our hope is this, that when I breathe my last heartbeat, in a millisecond I'll have gone and I'll have landed in glory side. I'll be in heaven. Not because I've been a good Presbyterian. Not because I've attended a church or read my Bible, or given money into the offering, or know my Westminster Confession of Faith, round the clock, nothing to do with that. I'll find my way in glory because of Jesus and Him alone. We sing about it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. It's all about you. My hope is in you. It's all about you, Jesus. That's our hope. And the problem is, the people of Bhutan don't know that this is the message. They know nothing about grace, nothing about Jesus, nothing about salvation, nothing about real happiness and where it can be found, nothing about one life or heaven or hell. They believe that salvation is a thing that they have to earn and merit and gain good works. And that's why Bhutan is in such need. That's why it's in such darkness and that's why this evening Bhutan is a country that needs people like you who'll do something about it. Let me finish by mentioning a couple of things. First of all, this evening, ask yourself, might God want me to go? Might God want me 
to give up what I have, what I'm doing, the path that I'm on, what's set before me. Might God want me to go and reach people like this with the gospel? Could there be anything better that a man or a woman could do than to take the gospel to people who have never heard it before? Might God want you to go? Secondly, might God want you to pray? Maybe you're here this evening, you've never heard a missionary report in Bhutan before. That breaks my heart. But I'll ask you this evening, would you maybe add Bhutan to your prayer list? Is there something that you could pray for? Some way in which you could bring this wee country and its great needs before God in prayer. And sitting out on the table, just on the right-hand side there, there's a couple of things that I'd love you to take. There's a wee postcard on the country of Bhutan and six wee prayers, one for almost every day of the week, asking you just to pray that God might move and break into the darkness of Bhutan. Maybe it's those wee boys that bother you and upset you. Maybe that's what struck you this evening. Maybe you have a wee boy of five or a grandson of five and the thoughts of those wee boys breaks your heart. Would you go to the stand out there and just take up the wee bookmark with the wee boys on it and on the back, just a cry, God, please, come and move. Wake these boys up in the middle of the night. By your Holy Spirit, challenge and speak to them. Show them the futility of man-made religion. Bring them to Christ and to the gospel. Maybe it's those older people. Another wee bookmark that you can pick up. Maybe it's something you could pray for. Those older people sitting at the shrines, burdened and fearful about what happens in the next life. And on the back, just a prayer that God would send workers and send evangelists. You can pray for the country. You can go. Thirdly, you can, you can just get information to do something about it. Help us in a practical way. We have uh, our little beautiful feet fund where we support church planters like this for about a pound a day. You could be involved in helping us to provide Bibles. There's a little leaflet there, ways to help. If you'd like to go out on the team with us or see what God's doing across in Asia, or help in another way, you can pick up that little leaflet. And lastly, our magazine, which we produce every quarter. It won't cost you a penny to get. And if you just give me your name and address, put it on the list there. We'd love to send you information about Bhutan, Laos, the Maldives, North Korea, Afghanistan, Syria. We'd love to tell you what God is doing there and maybe encourage you to pray. Bhutan is not the happiest place in the world by a long shot it just might be one of the saddest and I hope this evening that maybe something of what you have heard and seen and uh, might just grip your heart and increase your desire to follow God and push the boundaries of the gospel uh, to the four corners of the world